Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Tonight, what are we talking about? We're talking about uh, the growth choice. What growth actually means? What does it look like? How can we measure it? And uh, what are the keys to it? You're probably all familiar with how important uh, early precognitive experience is, the disproportionate impact that infancy experiences have in the development of the brain. Bulk of the synaptic connections of the right brain are shaped in the first three years of life. And uh, so uh, the right brain, of course, organizing so much of our emotional responses, our feelings, our unconscious predilections is shaped by early emotional interactions with between ourselves and others who provide care for us. And these experiences, whether we felt seen, understood, people were either uh, responsive or unresponsive to our seeking attention, these experiences, the patterns, the tens of thousands of interactions of childhood are stored unconsciously in areas of the right hemisphere shore, suggests in an area, area called the right orbital frontal. And they're stored as what some psychologists called schemas, internal working models. Uh, some people call them parts. The Buddha called these early experiences that were so influential and formative, Nama Rupa. Nama Rupa is the precognitive experiences that shape our perspectives of the world, whether, for example, we view ourselves as lovable or unlovable, whether we trust others or we don't, whether we feel safe in the world or not, whether who we turn to for attachment, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These predilections, inclinations, are the result of early experiences. So some things that trigger fear in us, such as snakes, darkness, heights, or perhaps things that create delight, like bright, colorful, sweet things, these might have some genetic imprints that harken back to our ancestors in that specific elements that trigger emotional responses are transcultural, but uh, the most prevalent influence upon our unconscious beliefs are based on early learned associations. Essentially, what a key region of the brain, the right amygdala, works from the moment we're born and uh, it appraises uh, all situations, interactions, people, in terms of whether uh, they are positive for us or negative for us. 
Um, and when things are positive for us, they have a nervous system response. And when we encounter situations where we feel abandoned, not seen, uh, rejected, then the amygdala will activate a sympathetic fight-flight response. So in the future, when we encounter situations that in childhood felt threatening, we will in the future experience negative feelings. That's what the, the role of the amygdala is not just to remember the positive and negative experiences, but is to alert us in the future when we're about to stumble upon a situation that previously made us feel frightened or made us feel safe. So essentially what, uh, to summarize it, early experiences, specific events, types of events, uh, whether we felt during these experiences safe or vulnerable, uh, it's, re it's recorded by the amygdala and the amygdala in the future when it sees that we're in a similar situation will warn us to either retreat by creating negative feelings or it will encourage us to approach by creating positive feelings. The Buddha noted this as well. He said that nama rupa turns into feelings or vedana and that vedana comes in positive negative and neutral. So here's one of the biggest challenges, which is that um, these feelings and emotional memories that are stored unconsciously and happened in precognitive phases of life, we can't consciously remember them. They happen before the age of five, so they are lost to our explicit memory. In other words, the, um, the experiences that shaped and formed so many of our unconscious beliefs, the way we feel about other people, the situations that trigger fear in us or excitement, all of those experiences were that caused or shaped us are now lost. And so as a result in our adult life, so many of our feelings arise unpredictably and with a great insistency because they're pre-conscious, they're right brain. And so we can live at times with a great deal of uh, confusion or disconcertion because there are these feelings, anxieties, dreads, uh, uh, compulsions that arise, and they seem completely mysterious to us simply because the, they're stored in regions of the brain that are non-volitional. We have no control uh, consciously over it, and we can't even remember why we feel, for example, uh, fear of social situations or why we feel uh, attracted to food or television or some specific compulsion that almost has a magical hold over us. The causes of our feelings and emotions and behaviors, in other words, remain buried in the networks of implicit memory. Now, during states of, ex of really high arousal, expressive speech 
the kind that can understand and make sense of life is inhibited. That's Broca's area. And Broca's area is in the left temporal lobe. And it becomes overwhelmed when we are in a, uh, when unconscious emotional experiences trigger difficult, painful feelings. And so, even if we became aware of these unconscious beliefs that guide us based on early childhood, like it's not safe to trust people or it's not safe to ask for help, we wouldn't be able to integrate these emotional beliefs because the region of the brain that would be able to articulate them is offline. So it's very, very difficult in the role of counseling and therapy and spiritual practice and uh, recovery to make substantive change where we break free or break through the fears that um, can limit us and can limit our ability to grow. Um, so, the feelings that arise from these early uh, emotional beliefs or emotional experiences that are recorded in the right orbital frontal, they only take about a half second to fully create a reaction. In this half a second, they can trigger enough physical stress to make us, for example, avoid at all costs speaking in public. They can at a crucial juncture in a relationship when we need to state our needs, it can make us feel terrified and close up and lose all courage to speak up for ourselves. When asking for a raise in a job, we might feel suddenly sweaty, panicky, our stomach's tight, an inclination to run, fully in the belief that asking for a raise will lead us to get to become fired. Again, this is just the result of the early unconscious emotional beliefs that in childhood when we asked for something, it seemed that there might be some kind of punishing result perhaps. And so in adult life, in a similar type situation where we ask for something, it creates a sense of feelings that are so uncomfortable that we stop. We might avoid at all costs conflictual conversations. We might avoid trying new skills. We might avoid writing something that's important for us to write, a paper, a book, uh, our resume for a new job. What is writing? It's actually our thoughts being put down on paper so that somebody else can look at our thoughts. So, of course, writing is going to be one of the most vulnerable endeavors we can do as human beings because it feels like our thoughts, which are in many ways so associated with our core self, is going to be reviewed and evaluated. And if our thoughts are found to be lacking, of course, that if we have any history of attachment wounds or uh, attachment traumas, then it will be very painful for us. So at crucial junctures, not be able to complete the task because every time we sit down to do it, the unconscious emotional beliefs trigger physical stress 
that make these tasks where we could be evaluated or rejected or in some way uh, criticized, they make these tasks so uncomfortable. And at the same time, they make distractions like, uh, oh, I don't know, Amazon, uh, Netflix, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, you name it. They make other uh, distractions feel so relaxing and good because these are not arenas in where we care about or we anticipate rejection or the possibility where we don't have any childhood negative experiences so they don't elicit any negative feelings. And this is the underpinnings of procrastination and perfectionism. Perfectionism is just a nice term we wrap around the uh, stalling tendency to withhold something that's creative or something that uh, is important because ultimately we're fear of the possibility of rejection. So, again, the way the process works that leads us to avoid growth, avoid um, uh, uh, necessary vital adult milestones that would lead to a positive change, such as, for example, um, being willing to have at times conflictual conversations where we talk about times where our needs haven't been met, or... Um, putting forward our creativity in, and expressing ourselves. The, the reason is, is because something about these endeavors trigger early emotional events where we were not seen, where we were not, uh, where we didn't feel safely received. And so in the future, we practice avoidance coping conflict avoidance, uh, avoidance of speaking in public, avoidance of stating our needs, avoidance of whatever it is that um, we constantly struggle with. So this brings me to my um, pivotal point, which is the central event in healing and growth involves overriding avoidance coping. It means pushing through um, uh, what is in our long-term benefits, even though in the short term, it creates very, very painful feelings of fear, un discomfort, terror. Uh, and these are situations, again, where we all recognize nobody is under the illusions that the inability to write something that's important or... Um, uh, ask for needs or ask for a raise or be willing to have important conversations. We're all aware that these are necessary milestones in adult life, yet at the same time, uh, we can avoid them. And so the key to any form of therapeutic recovery, the key, the way we can measure how we're healing in any kind of therapeutic uh, uh, dyadic experience, the way we can discern how we're growing in life is the ability or those moments in life where we do something that previously was 
terrifying or frightening or just something that we consistently uh, turned away from that was ultimately in our best interests. I'd like to read um, one of my favorite psychologists, very famous guy, uh, Louis John Cozzolino, uh, in one of his landmark books, Why Therapy Works. Um, he says, taking on challenges by learning to regulate feelings of insecurity is key. Successful therapy correlates with a degree decrease in avoidance behaviors. I'll say that again. Successful therapy correlates with a decrease in avoidance behaviors. In other words, the way we appraise any therapeutic endeavor, whether it's um, uh, you know not only working with a counselor or therapist, uh, any kind of program, any kind of uh, growth-oriented coaching or whatever it is we're, we do, the key is to note the growth choice is that moment where we are willing to push through something that we have been avoiding because the feelings beneath it are so uncomfortable. Now, because the, uh, the feelings are precognitive, they're generated in a half a second, they are arise before we even have uh, an ability to override, and they have the, all the uh, influence of precognitive early events, we know that change depends on what's called neuroplasticity. We literally have to um, rewire very old, ingrained, uh, very overdetermined circuits in the right brain. It's very difficult to do, and yet it's very possible. The work of Joseph Ledoux at NYU, the great Eric Kandel, one of the most world's most famous neuroscientists, Elizabeth Phelps, uh, Daniela Schiller, Susan Sarah, and so many others show that we actually can um, change, rewire, uh, neurally synaptically override some of the oldest imprints or patterns of firing in the brain. The Im implicit emotional beliefs we've been talking about of early childhood that Shore establishes is in the right orbital frontal, which can up or down regulate the amygdala. Um, this is a region that's impossible to access by thought. So trying to think our way into right action or use just um, sheer will won't work. But the right orbital frontal is, we know, neuroplastic. It can change, but it doesn't change through ideas. It changes through an entirely different approach. So what is that? Well, that's what's called memory reconsolidation. The labs at NYU and so many. There's a wonderful, by the way, if you want to read about memory reconsolidation, there was an article about it in... Uh, the New Yorker, if you type in uh, memory reconsolidation or Joseph Ledoux and New Yorker, it'll come up and it's all about 
the new work that's been and how we change really deep, old, unconscious, emotional predilections and beliefs. I'm going to sh- uh, really simplify it. I mean, I'm sure that the neuroscientists would say I'm criminally simplifying it, but uh, this is a half hour or so talk, so got to make it a little quick. Memory reconsolidity means that in the midst of a firing of certain synapses that hold the old emotional beliefs like I'm unlovable or I can't trust other people or asking for help uh, invariably leads to embarrassment. Um, The moment those circuits are active is the moment they can be rewired. If we simply try to change the circuits when they're not active, they are not subject to reconsolidation. So they found that in the midst of an activation of the circuits that hold these unconscious fears, terrors, predilections, inclinations, we need to find and generate completely different emotional experiences that invalidate the old emotional beliefs. And this... uh, this, uh, these uh, experiences that invalidate the old emotional beliefs must be based on images, not words or ideas. So I'm going to explain this and really parse this out. Um, when the mind holds in, in, in its awareness both the old, contra- the old fear-based beliefs for instance, that conflict is bad, that it should be avoided at all costs. If at the same moment we show ourselves that this old belief is not true, that is the moment in time where the mind can reconsolidate that circuit to a new, entirely different adult belief that in fact conflict is not always bad, that we can survive conflict, that it's not always going to harm us to state our needs or to be creative or to put forward something that's vulnerable. So let's even parse this down more concretely. What, how would we do this in a practice? Well, suppose, for example, we had a real fear of asking for uh, something from a partner. Um, Every time we start to open our mouth, uh, every time we get on the verge of stating a need, making a request, uh, setting a boundary, we clam up. We feel physically tight, uncomfortable. We feel unsafe. Our heart starts pounding. Then Broca's region that formulates expressive thought and speech shuts down so we can't even speak. So how would we work with this? Well, the first thing we would do is in a safe environment, a place where we feel really not vulnerable, a place where we feel secure. It could be uh, either in a place at home or with a therapist or in a meditation practice or um, in a spiritual environment. We stimulate the synaptic regions of the brain that hold these old implicit fears in mind by visualizing 
ourselves in a scenario where we're about to ask for our needs. We're about to state a boundary or we're about to go into a situation that could be conflictual. So in that very moment, if we visualize it really accurately, we'll start to have the negative feelings that will make us uncomfortable. And at that very moment where we've activated that circuit again and again in our practice, we use the um, awareness's ability to step back and to bring in an entirely new image, an entirely new image that would disconfirm the old belief that would show us that it is in fact safe to set boundaries, that it is in fact state safe to state our needs, that it is in fact safe to ask for a raise, that it is in fact whatever it is we need to do that we've been avoiding. If it's a paper, we visualize ourselves sitting in front of a computer, we feel the fear and discomfort, and then we visualize a rewarding outcome of actually writing uh, this uh, piece. So we're bombarding our intention with positive comp compensatory images. And the key is we have to do this again and again and again and again. It's not like a one and done thing, but it actually is something that entire new forms of therapeutic modalities are based upon. Specifically, there's a new form of therapeutic practice called uh, coherence therapy. Um, and that uh, uses memory consolidation, reconsolidation as its centerpiece for the therapeutic encounter. Now, you might ask, what does all this have to do with uh, Buddhism? Where does Buddhism come in here? And well, the Buddha actually taught something uncannily similar. Not only did he show that uh, our uh, feelings are shaped by early experiences called Nama Rupa, but he also showed in a practice called Yoniso Manasikara that all ingrained behaviors have unconscious allures or beliefs, but that these unconscious allures can be overridden if we know how to step back and reflect, he said, on positive outcomes. And this had to be based on images, not on words. I'll read you the one of his uh, famous teachings in Yonisa Manasikara. When the average individual experiences a negative feeling they immediately step away from whatever it is that causes that and crave something that feels good. They have no other way to respond to discomfort but to resist it or to seek pleasure. They only see the allures but not the drawbacks. They don't know there's another way. And he says that through reflection in uh, uh, the Two Arrows Sutta, it's through reflection that of the visual or the positive outcomes through visualizations that we can actually see the drawbacks and actually see the way out. Let me give you some examples of this. Um, allures are those implicit emotional beliefs that are resistant to logic, that are maladaptive, but keep us locked in avoidance behaviors or in some kind of behavior that we're unhappy about. So, for example, conflict avoidance, the unconscious belief is that having someone angry at me is dangerous, that the relationship will never recover, 
that I'll lose a, a, an important person in my life and therefore any kind of conflictual conversation I need to avoid. Worrying, the unconscious emotional belief is that it keeps us prepared and safe. Uh, food binging, the unconscious emotional allure is that uh, we feel less alone when we eat. We feel that someone is taking care of us, that we are seen and loved by the simple act of eating at times. Um, avoidance um, of all, you know, not only of conflict, but of stating our needs. The unconscious belief is that if I do ask for my needs, if I do set a boundary, that alone will lead to my rejection, that it's only because I'm making myself small or compliant that I'm getting any of my, even a shred of my needs met. So the key for the Buddha was first to stand back from the feelings, watch the feelings arise that push us towards these old outdated avoidance copings or outdated compulsions. And then after we not we don't act on the allure, we turn to the exact opposite action that that is being that is the normal action. And we visualize that. And then we couple that with positive feelings or what he calls positive uh, sukha vedana. And then eventually we begin to become inclined to the replacement behavior. The way that this practice works is the same way that memory reconsolidation and coherence therapy works. Essentially, we wait until we activate the actual feelings of discomfort and fear associated with a growth choice. And at that very moment, we feel most uncomfortable, we switch the script and we visualize an outcome that is so rewarding or so oppositional to what we expect that at that moment, we begin to chip away at the circuitry and rewire it. Um, a classic example in coherence therapy, I love this one, and I'm going to end with this example before we go into the talk. And I've used this example uh, several times in the past. So uh, if you've heard this, um, just bear with me. But a classic case in coherence therapy was of a young woman who was living with her mother and she was engaged to be married. And her mother really liked the fiance. The fiance was really happy in the relationship, but there was only one problem, which was the um, daughter refused to move out of her mother's house and to live with her fiance. And this was creating a huge stumbling block in their relationship. And the mother was all in favor of her daughter leaving. The fiancé was. And even the daughter, when she was calm, uh, could see the benefits. But yet, 
when it came down to actually have the conversation about how she would move out, she would become so wrapped up in fear and terror that she would retreat to her room and refuse to discuss it and would avoid the topic at all costs for a period afterwards. So, with the encouragement of the people around her, this woman went into therapy and she talked about this great fear she had of moving out of her mother's place. And the therapist was very clever. He didn't treat this fear as one a complete mystery, even though it seemed like it to her. He said, well, there must be an unconscious, buried, lost to memory event that um, created it. And he did something that you don't have to do in therapy, but he's, he first tried to find an unconscious memory or image that might have justified this fear of moving out from her mom. And after a long time of uh, trying to find what was the underlying rationale, not treating the symptom as like it was insane, but looking for a cause, she had a trace memory of a time in her childhood where her father was very drunk and violent and seemed to be on the verge of attacking her mother. And in this image, she recalled herself standing in between her parents and stopping her dad from approaching and attacking her mom. So in that memory created the justification for her fear of moving out. She created an unconscious emotional belief from that event or a series of events uh, that moving out would leave her mother vulnerable. So she was still living in a reality, an emotional reality that occurred 25, 30 years earlier. And that's the thing about the right brain. It's timeless. Even though... Uh, situations, family systems, interactions have long passed. Uh, the right brain doesn't know. It doesn't really get it that we're no longer vulnerable until we show it through reconsolidation that we are not vulnerable anymore. So in this uh, therapeutic encounter, the therapist then had her write down the emotional belief, I believe moving out of my home will lead to my mom being killed or being harmed. And then the moment she would start to feel that feeling, perhaps, perhaps when she and her partner, her fiance were having the conversation, he would have her visualize and reflect on all of the, uh, the facts about her mom's life today that showed that she was safe. The fact that she was no longer with her, her original husband, that he had actually in fact uh, died a long time previously, that she was with a new partner, that she lived um, right next to friends who could come over to any time. She showed this old circuit when it was hot, the disconfirming evidence, as it's called. And over time, she was able to move out. And that's the growth choice. The growth choice is when we reconsolidate 
the emotional beliefs that underlie our avoidance coping. And we show the inner child or these old unconscious emotional beliefs that we are now safe to pursue our happiness in life. Uh, from my counseling of a woman I worked with who was a very, very, very talented photographer, but always would struggle to um, uh, submit her work to galleries or to even calls for art because she would become so caught up with doubt and perfectionism and so caught up with um, this discomfort that she was sending the wrong images. But really, what was beneath all that, that was just a ruse for the fact that um, uh, she had a early experience of a very strong experience of early abandonment, which translated into a sense that if she ever put her true self forward, that it would inevitably lead to the most wounding experiences in life. And so even though she was very talented when she was photographing things commercially, when it was her own work, her own expressive photography, that's where it was the most painful and most difficult for her to take a step forward because that's where she, her sense of her core self was most exposed. It's in those creative, deep uh, expression of the unconscious and music, art, writing, uh, dance, all of the movement, all of that is, of course, so um, bilateral. There's so much involvement of the unconscious in that. And so we develop this, this sense that, oh, if I get rejected here, that's where it will hurt the most. Therefore, that's what we put off doing, even though subsequent to those early abandonments, we might have experienced positive associations with music. Later on in life, we develop avoidance around it because it can feel like the most vulnerable way that our true self is now in our adult life being seen. Um, it doesn't matter if you can't recall the originating events. What does matter is get to the place where you feel whatever slight unconscious negative feelings that make it something that has been difficult recently, and then bombard that unconscious emotional belief that it will lead to rejection with the exact opposite images, images of people recognizing your courage, your endeavor. So that's tonight's talk. I uh, hope that something in there was at least uh, thought-provoking in some way. And so uh, we're going to meditate now, actually practicing memory reconsolidation. And uh, if you'd like to support my work, of course, the um, Venmo is Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, P-U-N-X-N-Y-C. I'm really grateful for, if you can, of course, if you don't have the financial means, no worries at all. Uh, I'm a Buddhist pastor, and everything I do is offered by donation entirely. So 
that's it for my uh, spiel. And now let's um, sit in a really comfortable seated position. I'm going to have a sip of water for my uh, voice and um, let's close our eyes and just find an upright seated position where there's a nice alignment between the head, our shoulders, and our sit bones. And pretty much all of the Buddhist renunciates that I studied with always started every meditation with just finding a good alignment, which is, uh, again, keeping the head nicely balanced over the shoulders and then the shoulders in line with the sit bones. And uh, the reason why we want to have a good balance is because if your body is really uh, well-balanced, you don't have to use any of the muscles in your back and in your uh, chest or in your shoulders, in your neck. You don't have to use any of those muscles to keep yourself seated. And when you don't have to use or exert muscles to uh, keep ourselves seated, then we can begin to relax. And re relaxing, developing ease is the surest way to bring our awareness comfortably back into our body. And that's where all meditations uh, find their origin by returning awareness from the world outside, returning awareness from our fixation on thoughts and uh, bringing attention to interoception, awareness of the physiological sensations associated with inhabiting a human body. And so let's just see if we can imagine all of our awareness returning from the world outside through the eyes and the ears into the head. And then imagine this awareness that's now entirely in your head begin to spread downwards into your body below, almost as if you're taking an elevator down into the basement and sub-basement. So you're lowering your awareness no longer behind the eyes, between the ears. Your awareness is now beginning to slowly move down to the area behind maybe the lips. And every area your awareness lowers to see if you can use that awareness to soften and relax. So if we can imagine awareness lowering behind the mouth while we're there, see if we can just find a really comfortable, extended 
relaxed position for the mouth. If an unforced smile is available or half smile, that's fine. But if not, don't try to force it. Just have a neutral expression. Lowering awareness behind the lower jaw and just releasing any clenching. Lowering awareness into the neck. Just see if you can relax any tension in the muscles in the back of the neck or any tightness choking in the front. Lowering awareness into the area between the shoulders spreading, fanning out to include the shoulders if you're capable of that and just see if while we're there we can pull back, roll back the shoulders and just drop them so that they're hanging heavily away from the ears. And then continue lowering awareness into the area be. Uh, behind the chest. See if you can breathe into the chest, filling it up and then very slowly, softly releasing, cultivating ease in the chest. Bringing our awareness down to the area associated with the abdominal muscles near the top of the abdomen, stomach, and then just see if we can breathe in, expand, and then as we breathe out slowly, release any tension or tightness, contraction in the belly. Just using awareness in the breath to soften the belly. And then finally, just continuing lowering awareness down through the legs or through the arms. Experiencing the body is a vast night of stars that can each be explored. There's no limit to your awareness. You can move and get right up close to the sensations associated with the tips of the fingers or the the pads of the toes, even though those sensations might feel very far away from the normal realm of awareness, which is generally behind the eyes, between the ears. In meditation, If we practice enough, we can move the mind, move awareness anywhere, get right up close to sensations that would normally feel a distance away from us. Even every sound that's occurring that you're aware of, imagine you could get right up close to it. 
There's no limits to what awareness can do. Bringing awareness back to any area in the body that feels really comfortable, any sensation. Perhaps the palms of the hands, a feeling of warmth in the chest. Perhaps the repose of eyes that have settled behind in their eye sockets and just find one group of sensations in your body that feel more comfortable discernibly comfortable and just see if you can use each breath to spread this comfort suffuse it through needing the pleasure, the comfort throughout the rest of your body, the settledness, the calm, just spreading it. If the pleasure is in the palms of your hand, imagine with each exhalation it or inhalation, whichever you prefer, the ease and comfort moving up the arms, 
towards the shoulders, chest.
Now at this point, we're going to move to the reconsolidation practice. I'd like you, or invite you, if you'd like to do this second part of the practice. And if you don't want to, of course, you can continue to do the uh, calming, soothing meditation. If you'd like to do the uh, reconsolidation practice, what I'd invite you to do is visualize in as much detail and accuracy as you possibly can a situation where you would like to, uh, where you uh, would benefit from an endeavor, and yet you've been putting off that endeavor because something about it triggers discomfort, aversion, avoidance, and so forth. Uh, it could be anything from... Uh, going outdoors and exercising. It could be uh, something interpersonal, something that we need to advocate for in a relationship. It could be something to do with a family member, uh, setting a boundary with someone that's difficult that we always uh, struggle to set. It can be uh, anything creative that we fail to complete due to uh, that old perfectionism, procrastination, avoidance coping. It doesn't matter. Just bring to mind anything that you've struggled with that you know is in your long-term best interest, best interest of others, and yet, for whatever reason, it is very difficult to, to actually do. And just see if you can visualize performing this task so that you actually get to the place where you can actually feel the discomfort, the the stressful feelings based on the old, outdated emotional beliefs. To see if you can visualize this important endeavor that still we have been avoiding with such accuracy that you can feel your stomach tighten. The, nest, the hollowness in your chest or almost a feeling of, of clenching around the neck or a, a feeling of jumpiness. And if it's difficult at first, no worries. But if you can get to the place where you can start to feel some of the feelings of aversion associated with these emotional beliefs, then you know that the emotional belief is now active. And it's at the moment when you feel the discomfort that you now visualize a positive outcome. This can be based on actual experiences where you've seen in those times in your life where you did push through avoidance and you did accomplish something, how good you felt about it. Or it could be just envisioning an outcome that hasn't occurred yet using your imagination. But what we're going to do is bombard awareness 
with a completely different outcome than what it ex- what our emotional beliefs expect. Just bombard your awareness with a positive visualization. The wanted, desired outcome. So if we've been avoiding a conflictual conversation with a roommate, we visualize ourselves in that conversation. And the moment we start to feel uncomfortable, then we visualize ourselves in the future, feeling proud, talking with someone, how we've set a boundary, how we've stated our needs. We visualize a positive outcome that creates really positive compensatory feelings. And if you can visualize enough positive imagery that you start to really feel a sense of ease and comfort in your body, really savor that feeling, showing the inner child that we're safe. So in a moment, I'm going to uh, ring the bowl and uh, whenever you're ready, take your time and uh, very slowly open your eyes.